0: Hey so we are week 2 of the big story. But here's what we're doing. You know, it is not a coincidence that the vast majority of the Bible is stories. And to read faithfully, we want to be able to read them as stories and to understand the large story that God is telling through the Bible. And you know, if you think about it, God could have chosen to say you know, a lot of the Bible could just be one page, 12 relevant things you need to know about Jesus in a bullet point. But instead He gave us stories, and we are looking at how Jesus begins his career in the Gospel of Luke. Last week, we looked at how Jesus was um, tempted by the devil in the wilderness and how he overcame that temptation, and it was Jesus kind of establishing himself by declaring what he wouldn't do. This week, we're going to see Jesus reading from a scroll in Nazareth, his hometown, in a synagogue service, and sort of defining himself in terms of what he's going to do. And in both instances, we're going to see that Jesus defines himself according to the words of Scripture. Okay, so if you want to follow along, this is um, the Gospel of Luke, starting at um, verse seventeen. You find Luke right between Matthew or between Mark and John. Sorry, and um, so here's where we pick up. So Jesus has returned to Galilee. It says, and he's been in. The wilderness, being tempted. Galilee is the northern part of Israel. It's where Jesus grew up. It's a really diverse place. Lots of people there. It's a really interesting place at the time. And Luke emphasizes once again that Jesus is doing this in the power of the Spirit. This is a major emphasis um, in this first part of Luke. Over and over again, we're told that Jesus is filled with the Spirit. He's compelled with the Spirit. He does things in the power of the Spirit. It's interesting in the way that Luke portrays it. He never describes it the same way twice. And I think Luke is doing this very intentionally, because what he wants us to know is that Jesus' relationship to the Spirit, and by definition ours as well, is that. It's a relationship. It's not a technique. It's not a skill. It's not a jacket you put on or a drug that you take. It's a quality of Jesus' relationship that he has with the Spirit. And in in the group I put together to talk about these passages, one of the questions that came up is, what would this feel like? to be filled with the Spirit, to be doing something in the power of the Spirit. And watching Jesus in these passages, I think it feels like doing the right thing, because the way that Jesus best expresses working in the power of the Spirit, of, of being obedient to the Spirit, is simply that. It's being obedient. It's doing the right thing. That's what it feels like. So, The other thing Luke wants us to know at this point is that Jesus has been teaching. He's not just a miracle worker. He's also been teaching. And as a consequence of this, he's become quite famous. And there are big crowds following him around. Now, we're going to use these. This is from a thing called the Brick Bible. And we have permission to use these. We asked for permission to use these. There's a whole bunch of them all the way throughout the Bible. We thought these were a better image than, like, the cheesy movie Jesuses that John put up last week. Part of the problem is, is that you see that Jesus in a movie, and then he's in another movie. And, and it's like, wait, what is Jesus doing living in a hatch in Lost? Or what is Jesus doing being a hitman for Ben from Lost, which is another, another Jesus. It's confusing. You won't see this Jesus anywhere else, okay? So Jesus is right now a celebrity, and he has decided, he's made his, made his name around... And he is now going home to Nazareth, which is his hometown. Um, And Luke tells us as he goes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. Now, Nazareth is a small town, maybe four or 500 people, living in a space that's probably smaller than the church property that we have right here. Um, Towns were very compact. And Nazareth is kind of a bywater. There's been a lot of economic and social development going on in Galilee. And Nazareth is one of those places that's back in the hills that has been left behind. And so Jesus is the big celebrity who is now coming home to his small town. And he goes on the Sabbath day, he goes to the synagogue to worship. Um, And this was his habit, Luke points out to us. And Luke is very careful to show us that both Jesus and his family are very scrupulous in doing the things that a righteous person would do during their time. Later on, Jesus is really, and in fact, in just a minute, Jesus is going to push against the expectations of the people quite a bit. But as far as he can, both Jesus and his parents are absolutely observant in what a good Jew would be doing during their time. Now, a synagogue is a little hard to figure out exactly what was going on, but basically it was kind of like a Bible study, where there would be a particular text that people would read, and then they would talk about it. And so this was, as we'll see in a minute, it's going to be Jesus' turn to do this. So it would be something like this. You'd stand up and you'd read, today we are reading from Isaiah. Now, you can do a lot of research on what synagogue worship during Jesus' time was like, and it's a little hard to get exactly what was happening because we don't have any contemporary accounts other than something like this. Most of the accounts that we have are a little later, and you can only reason back so far and be accurate. So, for instance, if you were interested in wondering what free Methodist worship was like in 1870 and you came here, you might conclude that free Methodist ministers either have a cheesy goatee or an awesome soul patch. And you might conclude that all of the drummers in free Methodist worship bands wear socks with their flip-flops, right? You would just think that that's, it's here, so you reason back. So there, there's a certain limit to when you can reason backwards. But what we generally know about synagogue worship is that they had a set series of readings. They would always read something from the Torah, the first five books of what we call the Old Testament. And then there would be a reading from what they called the HaTorah, Torah, or it was what we call the historical books and the prophets, And you would generally know what the reading was going to be before that date. And so Jesus would have stood up, and because today was the reading from Isaiah, and it describes it in the passage. It says he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, because that was probably the one that was on the schedule. And then he found the place, and there's a discussion here of whether Jesus is looking for this particular passage or that was the one that was just scheduled for that week. My guess is it's probably the scheduled one, but we can't know completely for sure. But he goes to the place where it's written, and then he begins to read. And he reads a very famous passage. This is one that the audience probably was really stoked to read. And he says this. And as we're reading this, we know that, wow, a lot of this really applies to Jesus. He says, "...the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor." We know that the Spirit of the Lord is on Jesus, but what's interesting is that it's something that only we as the readers know. The, the people in the story don't know this yet. All of the stuff about Jesus being filled with the Spirit is the narrator talking to us as the readers. This is the first time that this has been brought up for the characters in the story. And so we already see how this is applying to Jesus. He goes on. He, again, he's reading Isaiah 61, and he says, He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind. These are big deal things. To set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now again, this is a really powerful passage. It looks forward to a time when God is going to come and set everything right again. Everything that is broken, everything that is messed up, the Lord is going to come and set it right. And a lot of folks at this time understood this passage to apply to the Messiah that when the Messiah comes, he's going to be the one to do this. And for the people sitting in this little backwater synagogue in Nazareth, they were thinking, yeah, the Messiah is going to come and he's going to kick out the Romans. And this whole economic system that has gotten so messed up, he's going to fix that. And we're not going to be on the bottom anymore. We're going to be on the top. And you know, the way the Jews are getting hammered, we're going to be the bosses again. And But they might have been a little confused because... The latter part of Isaiah 61-2, the next couplet in that that poem, goes on to say and that God was going to bring a day of judgment, which in context meant judgment against the Gentiles. So Jesus' audience was like, wow, that's a little weird that he cut it off there. But they were probably pretty stoked. And they have this celebrity in in their worship. Now, normally after you were done reading in the synagogue, you would be the first interpreter. So, if you were good at it, you would give like a small interpretive speech. If, if you were bad at it, you would read the passage, you would race through it, and then say, and uh, I think this means to say to us um, that God is awesome, now somebody else please talk before I die, or something like that. Some of the people were good at it, some not so much, but it was everybody's responsibility in the community. So it's Jesus, now that Jesus has read it, As Luke explains, he rolled up the scroll, he gave it back to the attendant, and sat down, which is probably the expected thing. You would stand up to uh, read the text, and then you'd sit down for the discussion, because it was really a discussion of peers. And the eyes of everyone are the synagogue are on him. He has just read a powerful passage, and they're wondering Is he going to apply this to our situation? And this is the small-town guy. This is the guy from our community that's now a celebrity, who's a famous teacher. What's he going to do here? And he says this. This was completely unexpected. What they expected him to say was, well, Rabbi so-and-so has read the passage this way, and Rabbi so-and-so has read it this way. I think we should read it this way. And then this is how it connects with our world. And instead, Jesus says something completely unexpected. He says, Today, which is a really loaded word. It's, common in very, Deutero- it's very common in Deuteronomy. And today is, is something that's used a lot in Deuteronomy when God, through Moses, is about to say something essential. And Jesus is. All of that stuff, it's about me. He says, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. That was me that I was reading about. Now, the passage goes on to tell us that there's like a murmuring in the crowd, and you can see the people here starting to talk to each other. They're like, wow, these are, this is great. And, and it says, it, it, it says for everybody, everybody took notice, and they wondered, they marveled at what Jesus said, and they said, well, isn't this Joseph's son? This is the kid that grew up in our community. Now, while the people are talking back and forth amongst themselves, Jesus keeps going, and he goes in an even more unexpected way. See, Jesus knows that in their society, and theirs was a little different than ours. It was very much an honor and shame society, that Jesus, as a celebrity, but as a junior member of their town, he owed it to them to bring his honor and to bring his glory back to the town. So what he had been doing in other places, he had to do there. And whatever credit that belonged to him at this point, whatever glory, whatever celebrity, it was his job as a younger member of the society, as a guy that's not even married yet, to come back to Nazareth and bring all of that glory back to Nazareth. And if he'd been doing amazing stuff in other places, he certainly had to do it there. Knowing this, Jesus goes off in a completely different direction. Look at what he says. He says to them, surely you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, meaning do it here. Do it here. Do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. And, And there's a real edge to this. Again, remember Nazareth is a small Jewish town that has been left behind. Capernaum is a new city that has the bright shining lights, has all kinds of awesome stuff. So guys that have been left behind in that small town, Capernaum is, is this town that, in Nazareth, they always probably said it, Capernaum. You know, it's this awful place along the way. So you owe us, Jesus, and Jesus knows this. And he says, I'm not going to do that. That's not what I'm going to do here. And then he goes on further. And the people start to get really wound up about this. Now, another thing in synagogue worship you would probably do at this point is you would begin to add other passages much like we do in sermons now. Here's the passage. John's going to do this in a few minutes. Here's another passage that I think applies to this, and so he does. But the two things he cites are two stories from the prophets. And Jesus himself is at this point identifying himself as a prophet when he used Deuteronomy language and what he says here in a minute. He says, you're going to tell me, you know, a prophet doesn't have honor in his hometown. So the way I could see you guys already reacting This is how prophets are always treated. And so Jesus is now claiming to be a prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy. And so as a prophet, he's going to interpret the passage a little further. And so what are the relevant passages? When God comes and does a great reset, what's it going to look like? And he cites two instances. The first one, he says, you know, you guys, kind of reading their minds, you think this is going to be about you. But you know what? Remember, the two big prophets were Elijah and Elisha, or Elisha if you want to designate them a little differently. When Elijah was prophet and there was famine in Israel, you know what? When God decided to do something amazing and do a big reset, he didn't do it in Israel. He went to Zarephath up in Phoenicia and fed a a woman there who was a widow. And that when Elisha was going to cure somebody from leprosy, there were lots of people in Israel that had leprosy. But when God decided to work through Elisha and cure that person, no one in Israel got helped. It was Naaman from Syria that God helped. At this point, the crowd is freaking out. For one reason, Jesus has just completely blown their minds. And by the way, let's talk for a minute here. It's really important when we read a passage like this that we identify with the right people in the passage. The tendency for us is to kind of identify with Jesus. And when you read this, it's like, yeah, man, those people in Nazareth, what's up with them? Why don't they get it? They don't get it for the same reason you and I don't get it. We tend to see things in terms of what we expect to see and they expected Jesus to proclaim that God was going to work and there was going to be this big reset. And they, as faithful Jews, were going to be the main recipients of this. And now he's saying God is going to do this big reset. The Messiah is here, and the first beneficiaries are going to be not us, but them. They're pretty freaked out by this. He's already dishonored them by saying, I'm not going to do miracles for you, when they, he kind of owes them miracles, by the way they understood the way the world was work was supposed to work. And they think, what? He's not going to start with us? God's going to do this great thing and the outsiders are going to get it first and not us, the faithful insiders? They're pretty unhappy. And then the other thing is, is I think they're just a little scared. It's a scary thing when God begins to work. When God really starts to move and it's clear that God is moving through Jesus at this point, that's kind of troubling. And they react in the way that scared and angry, and confused people do. Luke says that they grab Jesus, and they take him, and they carried him to the edge of town, to some cliffs on the edge of town, and they're they are so angry, they're going to throw him over the cliff and kill him. And Luke says instead that Jesus just walked away, without really even explaining it. So what we've learned about Jesus in this story again is that he has defined himself in terms of the scriptures. He is the Messiah. He is the one that God's Spirit is on to do amazing things, to bring good news to the world. But we found that for the first audience of that good news, they weren't quite ready for it. And so John's going to come talk to us now about just what it does mean to be ready when God gives us good news
1: so Bob talked about
0: this they're angry for these different reasons resentment and dishonor
1: Gentiles and Jews good news is scary uh, when I was uh, moving from uh, got into business before I was a pastor I worked for this one company for 16 years and uh, right out of college I, I got into this office and I was young you know whatever however old you are out of college 22, 23 or whatever in my case 28 but anyway so uh and and uh the vice president would travel he'd go on these business trips and i remember sitting at my desk going i want to go on a business trip cuz they looked really romantic to me not romantic in like a looking into somebody else's eyes but just like romantic like this would be the coolest thing ever and so and the, and the vice president would complain about going on business trips and i'm like what's your problem dude if I could go on a business trip, I wouldn't complain. I'd love it. I'd take it to every advantage I possibly could. And it's going to be cool because you can fly. like could be in a plane. And then when you land there, you can go to some fancy schmancy restaurant and, you know, eat all this stuff. And so, uh, uh, so finally, I went on my first business trip. And I, mean, I was walking through the airport. Everyone was looking at me going, wow. Are you on a business trip? I, you could just feel the honor. I mean, just, I, and I'd walk, and you know, we were poor, so I had these just gnarly looking luggage and stuff you know, hanging all over, but I'm just like, yeah, what's up? Business trip? Me too. All right, talk to you later. And, uh, and it was cool, because we didn't have 9-11 then, so you, it was kind of like it went fast, so. So I went on my first business trip and it was awesome. And I went to this restaurant and I ordered everything and I was just, I was on a business trip and I'm important. And everyone was looking at me and they could tell and people on dates, like I could tell their dates were like, I want to be with him because he's on a business trip. And the guys are like, you business traveler. And so, so that was my first business trip. So then I went on my second business trip, which wasn't really that cool because, you know, it was kind of the same thing and I had to realize I had to park and all, all that kind of stuff. And then I went on my third business trip. Then I went on my fourth business trip. And then I'm just like, I hate business trips because they're so, oh, uh. and so, and then I started traveling more. And then we had kids and I didn't want to be away from the kids. So, ah, uh, I hated it. I realized what this guy was talking about, about traveling. Why? Because my expectations... I had expectations about traveling. Now, that's great if your expectations about business trips means you think you're, just gonna, you're flying first class and everybody's doting on you and then you find out that you've got to go to meetings and do all this kind of stuff. But what if your expectations? You say, I just want to get married. And, 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 and he's going to make me breakfast in bed every day? And he's going to serve me and love me. And he's never going to do anything wrong. And he's going to be my champion. And he's going to ride in on a horse. you know, And all all this kind of stuff. And then you get married. And you're up there. And you say, I do. And I do too. Ooh. And then after two months, you're like, what in the world? Where did this dude come from? I talked to somebody this week. They're upset. They're in my office. They're talking about different things. Why? Expectations. Their expectations weren't being met. Now let me ask you another question. What if you have a certain expectation about how God is supposed to work in your life? You have a certain expectation about, hey, I've been faithful all this time. And we're having this thing. and I should be blessed. Or I've been doing this. Or I've been doing that. or, Or you have a certain expectation that you've been doing the wrong thing. And you think it's coming any day. God is just like... He's waiting, and you're just waiting, and and you're frightened of God because your expectation is that God is is upset, and He's mad, and He's going to smack you, and you don't want to be around Him. So you start to isolate yourself. What if your expectation about God isn't met? That's where these guys are coming from. They had an expectation about how the Messiah was supposed to work, and when you... Look at this. Look at, go back to Luke here. The spirit of the Lord is on me. And look at all the stuff. Good news, freedom, recovery, set the oppressed free. You're the Lord's favor. It's just like hip, hip, hooray. This is awesome. God can do all that stuff in my life. And all of a sudden, Jesus says, you know what? We're going to flip this on its head. That there might be something else about following God. There might be something else a part of God's plan that maybe doesn't fit your expectations the way you thought. And it gets frustrating. Has this ever happened to you? Something goes wrong in your life? Somebody passes away suddenly? You weren't expecting that. You'd been faithful to God. All of a sudden, he leaves or she leaves. You're like, what? What? And you're going, where's God in that? My expectation is that if I'm faithful, God's going to come through every single time. And so he's got this thing, the the year of the Lord's favor. And he goes on. All of a sudden, they they want to throw him off a cliff. Now, I won't ask you if you ever wanted to throw Jesus off a cliff, but here's that slide. This is, Jesus isn't the guy falling off the cliff. It says in the Bible, because this is one of my, Bob didn't touch on it very much, but it says he, he just is, like, they bring him to the edge of the cliff and then he just like, like, I don't know if he's like ninja or whatever, or he puts on a disguise. I did this this week. It was very, yeah, it was a, it's a very productive week for me, by the way. Uh, yeah. When, when I can do this, you know, I'm ahead of schedule. So, uh, but Jesus just like slips through Somehow. They're not acting or he's not, it's not going the way they expected. Has this ever happened to you? Are you in a place in your life right now where this is happening right now? Your life is not going the way you'd expect it when you first started following Jesus. Well, the good news is, the good news of the gospel and the reason Jesus said the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor is that, Where you are in your life right now, Jesus is mighty to save. He can meet you right there. You don't have to have it all figured out. You don't have to be in a spot in your life where you go, okay, if I just do enough, if I do enough, okay, okay, I know why he's not blessing me. I just haven't, I just haven't done enough. But when I do enough, he'll do it. He can meet you right there. He can guide you right there. Now, it might not look the way you expect, I took a class this semester pastoral counseling class and it was kind of cool because you know I took the class to learn how to counsel people you know you know because my counseling is like, don't do that anymore. That's terrible. Why, why would you do that? You know? And apparently that's not good counseling. So, uh, I, I, so I had to go to this class you know, where they teach you how to say that, but in a really nice way or have it drag out for eight weeks. And so, um, but what I found out in the class was I, I, there was stuff sh- the professor was talking about that I needed to hear about my own expectations and here's what there's just one statement she made almost at the last class and it's this she said this expectations will destroy your relationships and i thought well kind of, you know she's like G- give me some expectations that you have for some relationships like well you know i expect bob not to kill anybody in the office ha you know <laughs> right okay good <laughs> all, right. all these expectations but see when, when you start getting down into it, your expectations of your kids, you know, oh, when oh, they're born, you know, a little baby, and you think, oh, they're going to be a great artist or a great athlete or a great dancer, and all of a sudden they, just start, they don't meet your expectations and you're frustrated. Or all of a sudden you get married and you say, I do. And you think, oh, he's going to do this. And, uh, and all of a sudden you get frustrated. You expect your teacher to act a certain way. You expect your, your students to act a certain way. And those expectations will destroy relationships because you're going to keep wanting to change the person to meet your expectations. Now, what if those expectations are about God? What happens? We want to change God to meet our expectations. And guess what? He doesn't care about your expectations. <laughs> He's God. So what I want to do is I want to move to another section of Scripture uh, in Luke 9, which is a, a, up here. And, and so we're in Luke, and these, this four-week series, is all, they're all in Luke. And so I'm jumping five chapters ahead where Jesus has already called the disciples, and we'll talk about that in a couple weeks. But Jesus is alone. It says, once Jesus was praying in private... And his disciples were with him. I don't know how you do that at the same time, but I guess you do. Okay, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, "Who who do the crowds say I am? What are their expectations? What do they think I'm going to do? How do you how do they think I'm going to how, how do they think this whole thing is going to wrap up? Like who do they who do they say that I am?" And so if you just picture this, here's Jesus. He's, he's up, you know, wh- wherever, uh, on a hill or whatever, and he's praying. And all of a sudden, and, you know, my, my wife and I, sometimes we'll go walking, and we'll pray when we walk, and then we'll just start talking. Like, So I, I'd be like, Lord, you know, because we pray for people in the church and stuff. And so I'll be praying, Lord, pray for this family. I pray that you'd bring healing to them." And then I'll just, in the middle of my prayer, I'll go, hey, have you seen, you know, the Smiths? And she'll be like, oh, no, I haven't seen them for a while. Because there's nobody named Smith that goes to our church. But anyway, so I'll go, you know, have you seen him? No, I haven't. Okay, good. Lord, you know, we pray for this. And so it's just kind of this fluid thing. And that's how I think Jesus was. I think he was praying. He's got everyone. They're all kind of praying. It's real quiet. And he goes, hey, who, who, who do people say that I am? Right, right in the middle of that prayer, kind of that, that sense of, like, it's kind of a big deal. Who do people say that I am? So they answer. They replied. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And then Jesus asks a question that I think he's asking us this morning. I think he's going to ask you this week as you're driving to work or you're coming home or you're at home doing doing stuff, as you're raising your kids, as you're around your neighbors, I think Jesus has this next question for all of us. What about you? Who do you say that I am? What are your expectations about Jesus? Where are you at with the whole Jesus thing? Do you, do you, are you, how, does that, how is it working for you? Do you? Is it that if I pray enough and I pray hard enough and I sweat and I work myself up, then he'll answer my prayer? Like, what, what, what God do you follow? What are your expectations about God? Because here's one thing I know. If we have the wrong expectations or if we get something outside of Scripture, or we get something in our mind, it will destroy that relationship with our Heavenly Father. Expectations destroy relationships. God is not contained in a box that we, we work a certain formula and we do kind, kinds of stuff, and, and, and sometimes we just have pain in our lives. And so Jesus says this, What about you? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter knocks it out of the park. Peter's like, softball question, God's Messiah. Bam! Bring it on, Okay? And so Jesus uh, strictly warns them not to tell anybody. He's like, don't let that get out. Now, I I wonder why he would do that. If I'm starting a ministry, right? If I'm the Messiah and I'm starting a ministry, like when Peter gets that, I'm like, God's Messiah. That would go on our T-shirts. Let's get those out. DVD series. We'll put it on the Internet. Here we go. We're going to launch the ministry. And Jesus goes, shh, don't tell anyone. You wonder why. And here's why I think. I think their expectations were wrong. And Jesus wanted to get them in the right spot of what it means to really follow him. So he says this. Son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, the teachers of the law. And he must be killed. And on the third day raised to life. Put that in your Messiah pipe and smoke it. (laughs) Try try that on for size, right? Wait a minute. No, you were supposed to come in and we're coming in like, you know, we're going to take over. Get the Romans out of here. He's like, no, no, I got to die. Now listen, this is so key because this is a kingdom principle. Oftentimes, before life, there must be death. Before that part of your life can explode with blessing from God, we have to die to it. Uh, Jesus put it this way, unless a seed falls in the ground and dies, it can't germinate to grow up. And and sometimes our expectation is that God's going to breathe life into a place in our lives that has to die first. And that he's just going to do it. Sometimes he does, but it's not a formula. So Jesus goes on again. He says this, not only do I have to die, be rejected and die and on the third day rise again, but he says this. Whoever wants to be my disciple should die. You got to deny yourself. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Man, that's a harsh word. But see, I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is once you get the right understanding of what it means to be a Christ follower, Now we can start talking about the Messiah. Now let me ask you a question. Is there a part in your life right now that needs to die before God can come and breathe new life in it? Because here's the thing I know about Jesus. He's got the power to bring sight to the blind, to restore, set the prisoner free, to bring uh, restoration, to bring the gospel, the good news, okay? But that same God that has that power is also very interested in your life. And it might be that there are certain expectations. In this particular culture that Bob was talking about, it was a shame-honor society. You did what you could to bring honor to the community. In our particular time, America, right now, we're very individualistic. We're in an individualistic society. And so what God is telling us is, listen, there might be some expectations you have on yourself that need to die. I should be farther along in my career. I should be married by now. We should have kids by now. Our kids shouldn't be in jail. We have all these types of things. You know. All these I should drive a different car. I should make more money. All these expectations. And Christ might be going, you know what? Those need to die before I can do a real great work in your life. You need to let those things go. So here's what he says, which is just so amazing. So you, you think, man, take up my cross daily and follow him. I don't want to die. Like, I just want Jesus to bless me. I just want like just the last part and, not, and then I'm on my own. You know, just look at, hey, I just want the raise and I'm good. I'm, thank you. You know, it's kind of like when you're working out and, you know, you have a spotter and maybe you're benching or whatever and you're like, uh-oh, this is going to fall on my neck. And, you know, your spotter's right there and he kind of just gives you about 10 pounds worth so you can, you can get it up and back. That's sometimes all we want Jesus to do. Just listen, throw me a little bone now and I'll be on my way and I'll be, I'll be able to, te- you know, take care of it myself. And he's like, no, I want the whole thing. So it gets scary to think, man, I, I don't know. I just, I just want to give him this thing. So here, here, here's what he says. This is so cool. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Listen, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. Jesus takes everything and turns it upside down. He says, listen, when you're ready to give up, Those things, the things that you think are going to bring you happiness, the things that the expectations you've placed on yourself, the burdens. I mean, don't we put burdens just on ourselves? I should be thinner. I should be stronger. I should be richer. I should. God's going, Hey, Hey, we can't start from there. We got to start with those things dying. As Jason comes back up, Bob and I were talking this week and, um, this statement came up while we were talking and it's really cool. So I think I came up with it uh, and not Bob. We were talking and we came, it actually was Bob. I'm just kidding around. He says, it's about building a house on a rock rather than turning rocks into bread. You know, we looked at that last week about, you know, that's the temptation that Satan had. Hey, you hungry? Turn the rocks the bread. We'll make it real fast. We'll do it. Get it done. Bam. And then your thing and everything's cool. Let's go. Move on. Let's go, 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 go. I'll show you all the kingdom of the world. Bow down to me. Come on. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And Jesus is more about building a life on the rock. And isn't it cool that he wants that from us? mean, don't you want the kind of life that isn't like, if I win the lottery, then I'll be happy? Like, isn't it great that we serve a heavenly father who loves us enough to go, we're going to do the hard work. It's encouraging.